Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, Sonia Harris, sitting in for John O'Brien. In this episode, you may know about Chris Hayes as a journalist and the host of MSNBC's All In with Chris Hayes. He's also the author of the best-selling novel, Twilight of the Elites. In his newest book, A Colony in a Nation, Hayes writes about two Americas. He distinguishes between a nation comprised of affluent whites and a colony consisting primarily of people of color and working-class whites. Hayes demonstrates through his research that the criminal justice system operates quite differently in both. When I was reporting in Ferguson and when I was reporting the west side of Baltimore and when I reported in New York and in Chicago, there were so many people that I talked to who were experiencing the police as an occupying force. There were people who were experiencing the police, a form of humiliation in the face of the police that is a form of humiliation that does a crucial and fundamental violence to our shared democratic principles. Chris Hayes spoke at Town Hall Seattle on March 29th. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Here, Town Hall's Kristen Leong introduces the event. It is my pleasure to introduce to you our speaker this evening. Chris Hayes is the Emmy award-winning host of All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC. He is the New York Times best-selling author of Twilight of the Elites, and he is also an editor-at-large at The Nation. And when asked recently by the New York Times book review who he would want to write his life story, he answered, I mean, honestly, me. <laughs> We all want control, don't we? Please join me and give a warm town hall welcome to Chris Hayes. Hey, everybody. How are we doing? Wow, 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 wow. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, can you guys hear me? You can hear me. Excellent. Um, well, thank you for that. I was, uh, I was saying beforehand that um, I was here five years ago for my first book, um, and I had never heard of Town Hall or been to Town Hall. I live on the East Coast. I don't get to come to Seattle much, but I've been here uh, for the first one. It was my favorite event. This is, and I'm not, just, I'm not just doing like the politician thing, like, I love Iowa. <laughs> like, uh, is there anything better than Iowa? No, this was, this was definitely my favorite event. Um, and it's an amazing space, and it's an amazing uh, institution that you guys have here. So thank you, thank you for having me here. Uh, I, I, I'm pacing because I didn't get my steps in today. Um, and I've <laughs> I asked them to give me a handheld microphone, so if it's not too annoying, I'm probably going to just sort of prowl around the stage. Um, and I'm going to try something different. So I've been, I have a new book out. It's called A Colony in a Nation. Um, and I'll be signing books afterwards. Um, I urge you to pick it up <laughs> and move some product. Um, and uh, it, you know, you do this thing where you're on book tour. I've been on book tour for a week and a half now. Uh, and it is, to go back to the politician analogy, it is like being uh, on the stump, right? So you um, kind of develop your stump speech. Um, so I'm going to try something completely different tonight. I'm working out entirely new material tonight. Are you guys okay with that? Okay. Good. So maybe worse. Just, you know, cut, cut a guy a break, okay? 
So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something that I haven't been doing, which I'm gonna start with the news today. Um, well, it's funny, you know, I, I've been not doing that because it's not nice to get a respite from the news. And uh, when I think it was in, I was in Philadelphia, and I came out and I gave him a sort of 25 minute talk about the book and uh, the, the origins of the metaphor that sort of guides the conceptual architecture of the book. And at about 25 minutes, I, I mentioned uh, the President of the United States. I said, Donald Trump, you're like, ugh. And I was like, I made it 25 minutes. <laughs> but no such luck for you tonight. So um, uh, today at the White House, um, today at the White House, there was uh, a meeting in the White House about the opioid epidemic in America. Now, there's a number of things happening with the opioid epidemic, just to set as context, that I think are important. Um, it's hard, I mean, having written this book and having lived through the years of hysteria around crack, for instance, in the 1990s, I am accustomed to bring to bear a certain kind of skepticism when people talk about a drug as an epidemic. Often there can be a kind of panic button that gets hit, and often that panic button can lead to instituting policies that are uh, counterproductive at best and brutally punitive at worst. All of that said, what's happening right now in this country with opioids is crazy. There are more opioid-induced deaths than gun deaths and auto fatalities. That's just unthinkable. I was um, recently in, in, in a place called McDowell County, West Virginia. Um, and McDowell County, West Virginia is the southern part of that state. It's in coal country. It's a, it's a very poor place. It has the lowest life expectancy of any county in the United States. Um, it's population, 48% of them are on Medicaid. And it has the highest rate of drug-induced deaths per 100,000 in the United States. That rate is 141 per 100,000. Now, to give you some statistical context for that rate, the highest that the homicide rate ever got in New York City in 1991, in the peak years of New York, as the na national murder capital was 30 per, per 100,000. When I was in a, 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 a high school auditorium in McDowell, and I was in a room that was smaller than this, but, but large, and I asked people to raise their hand if they had lost a loved one to opioids, Basically, every hand went up. So that's the, that's the context. That's the public health crisis that's happening right now in this country. I'll give one more bit of context, which is about how this came about. It's a very complicated story. I am not an expert on it. But largely, this came about through the prescription of painkillers, right? We did a story on my show before we went down to McDowell County about uh, a drugstore in a town called Kermit. Now, Kermit is a tiny town. Kermit's got 400 people in it. And Kermit is adjacent to McDowell County. And over the course of two years, there's one drugstore in Kermit, a town of 400 people. Over the course of two years, American pharmaceutical wholesalers and distributors shipped 9 million pills into a town of 400 people, into one drugstore. 
Now, these distributors are actually required by law to file reports when they suspect that there is illicit traffic. Uh, and one would think that, I'm not some sort of code jockey, but you could write an algorithm pretty easy to tell you something was afoot. They filed over the course of seven years, I think, and I'm not remembering particularly, something like two or three of these forms. So they knew what they were doing. So that's the context that brings us to today. And before I even get to today, one of the most interesting parts of the campaign to me were the town halls that happened, particularly in New Hampshire, at the end of 2015, the beginning of 2016. Do you remember those? Here you have all these politicians. They've, they've come to New Hampshire. They're inside the iconic snow-covered barns. Um, and they're there to talk about whatever they're there to talk about, but they're doing town halls, and people are standing up and question after question after question is about opioids. And it, it genuinely changed the trajectory of the conversations and the policy discussion because of that. So today, um, the President of the United States has a meeting. And in this meeting, uh, there are a variety of individuals. One of them is Chris Christie. I haven't even said anything yet. <laughs> now, Chris Christie was very happy to be in Washington today, and the reason he was happy to be in Washington was because a man by the name of Bill Baroni, who was his chief ally at the Port Authority, and his former deputy chief of staff were being sentenced to a combined three and a half years to prison for their, <laughs> for their role in Bridgegate. But Chris Christie had other things to do. He was at this meeting. And Chris Christie has, has spoken powerfully, uh, to his credit, about having empathy for folks who are in the grips of addiction, for treating them with compassion and treatment. And there were some other people there. There was the uh, director of the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. There were uh, two people who were, who were addicts, who were former addicts who had gotten clean. And <laughs> the president starts off by talking about the drugs that are pouring over the southern border. <laughs> They're pouring over the border. I talked about it on the campaign. They're just coming over. And General Kelly's doing a great job down there, but they're still pouring over. And what transpires in the meeting is, is um, darkly hilarious because it's a variety of people who are actual experts gently trying to tell the most powerful person in the world, it's not really about the border. So gently the drug enforcement, the DEA head is like, well, yeah, but... Um, you know, a lot of these are prescriptions, and they've been abused um, and, and overprescribed. And in fact, um, we're running these uh, days twice a year where you could bring the medicine in your medicine cabinets, i.e. not medicine that came from Mexico, uh, and, <laughs> and, and you could bring that in to our, our 5,000 local partners who will take that off your hands. And uh, there are two individuals there who both got uh, uh, hooked on uh, Oxycontin, and they're talking about their struggles. And after the, this, they go around the DEA, the president, he, he crosses his arms like this, and he looks at the DA, he goes, but would you say it's really a problem at the border?
I thought this was such an important moment, um, and it crystallized for me something really profound. Because I've been thinking a lot about the border in the context of the election. And if you go back, if you were watching the election as, as closely as I happen to, um, he talked about the border all the time, right? The border, the border, border. And he's not the first person. There was a period of time, particularly around 2006 and 2007, I was the Washington bureau chief of uh, The Nation magazine. And uh, I was covering the McCain-Kennedy comprehensive immigration reform, okay? And I would talk to um, folks in the immigration debate who wanted to restrict immigration. They would talk about the border. The border is overrun. And you saw it again in this campaign, the border, the border. And I would think to myself, watching this, like, he's there in Mahoning County, Ohio. And it's like, what do you care about the border? Or Erie County, Pennsylvania, or Kenosha, Wisconsin, like, uh, what's it to you? I mean, like, what are they going to flow across the border and then make their way to Mahoning and get a job? <laughs> but the border wasn't really about the border, right? And the president's focus today on the border in the context of an opioid epidemic that largely was driven by American pharmaceutical companies prescribing and distributing ungodly amounts of uh, opioids is not about the border. And why do you go back to the border? What is that about? What is the border obsession about? The border, to me, is about order. You're in a place that is experiencing what to you, in a subjective sense, and based on the statistics that we have available, decline. A decrease in the standard of living. Social unraveling. Disorder. And the border, a border wall, represents the antidote, right? The antidote to disorder is order. The antidote to unruliness, to uh, invasion, is barrier, precision, protection. And there's something about that that appeals to the deepest part of our shared socio-political and cultural DNA as a people. The first diary entry that the captain of the ship that settles Jamestown makes is he says, first entry, as soon as we came to shore, we were set upon by the savages. The experience of the settlements were an experience of conquest. They were an experience of ethnic cleansing, but in a first-person sense, they were an experience of constant terror, right? What lay out past the clearing? What lay out in the woods? And it's the same experience of the frontier, an experience of conquest, of ethnic cleansing, but also an experience by those doing the conquering of fear. What lays out past the frontier? What lays out past the border? Will they come and take it back? The experience of the slave patriarch resting his head on his pillow in his plantation in the low country in South Carolina. He is in control, and yet every day he reads posts in the local paper that circulated to the slavers of slave rebellions, cautioning him not to take too light a hand, cautioning him that his only backstop 
if they come for him is the gun and the force of violence. Now, in all these cases, our moral object of concern isn't with the delicate sensibilities of the slaver, right? Of the settler. Our moral concern is with the people who are on the wrong side of the whip and the wrong side of the gun and the wrong side of the disease. But as a descriptive matter, it is a through line of the American project to conquer and subdue territory not your own, to bring into your sense of order a disordered land, and to be animated at every moment that it may fall back into disorder, that it may be taken back, that you've painted a target on your back, that you who have brought it to order are in the crosshairs. Lynch mobs the expression of the ultimate in white supremacist terrorism, the um, tool by which Reconstruction was destroyed. Years of social progress erased for decades. The lynch mob. The lynch mob says they're scared, right? That they're enforcing the social order, that they are not lawless terrorists, but instead are enforcing the law. That they are protecting themselves. In 1968, Richard Nixon comes to stand at the podium. Wow, we got a hiss there. In 1968, Richard Nixon comes to stand at the podium in Miami Beach for the Republican National Convention to give his convention speech. And the context for that speech in 1968 is a country that is racked with disorder. There are protests, there are riots, there have been two of the most wrenching assassinations in the nation's history between MLK and RFK. Our cities are burning, he says, and tonight it is time for a frank discussion about the problem of order in this country. This speech would sort of come to be known as the law and order speech. And I'd always sort of thought about uh, law and order as being about the law. One nation under law, equal justice under law, the law and all it represents in a liberal democracy. But in doing the research for this book, in, in watching that Richard Nixon speech, it becomes very clear that what he's really talking about is the order part of it. Society had grown disorderly, the social order had come unraveled, and that order had to be reasserted. In fact, if you tolerated disorder, if you tolerated chaos, you would lead to criminality. It's around this time that something remarkable happens in American history, which has never happened before or since, which is the largest uptick in crime in the nation's history. Right? Now, this crime wave is, is very real. It's not some social construction. It's not the paranoid, feverish imagination of people who are the shared inheritors of our cultural heritage, who are maybe disposed to be fearful. Homicides, general violent crimes go up about 400% between 1966 and 1979. By 1991, there are 2,300 homicides in the city of New York. Last year, there were about 350. 
It is at this time that a new kind of politics develops that draws on old kind of politics. It's at this time that law and order politics make themselves felt from every race from dog catcher up to President of the United States. And that fear, that white fear, that white fear, one of the most powerful forces in politics, a force that if you cultivate, you are enriching political uranium for a nuclear weapon. It is brought to bear. And the arguments are so seductive, this lawlessness, this crime you fear in a city that after the civil rights movement is starting to integrate rapidly, we can protect you from it. We could punish the evildoers and the thugs and the criminals who threaten to overrun. It's at this same moment that much of the civil rights struggle for desegregation, particularly comes to northern cities, where often they are beaten back, the infamous Boston busing riots, for instance fights over affordable housing. And at every thrust and parry of every municipal dispute between a homeowners association or a school district or a city council district about where this housing is going to be placed and who's going to be in this school district, borders are being drawn. Now this fear that this produces is not to me some sort of um, alien thing because I felt it myself. <laughs> I was... Uh, 12 years old in 1991. And I had just started, I lived in the Bronx, and I just started going down to Manhattan every day to go to a public magnet school that, that took kids from all five boroughs. And um, this school was on one of these borders, right? On one side, in the neighborhood that I went to school on 94th Street in Madison was the Upper East Side, which is affluent and white. On the other side of the border was East Harlem, which is poor and black and brown. And at this time, which was New York City in the crack years and at its peak violent, we got jacked all the time. It was just a sort of routine. I remember um, going to a dance one night. I was walking with these girls who I was trying to impress. And... Um, this kid came up and he's like, run your bus pass. And I was like, what? He's like, I said, give me your fucking wallet. And I want to be like, actually, that's not what you said. <laughs> he said, run your bus pass. But I reached into my wallet and he knocked it down on the ground. And I was maybe going to try to take it back. And he whistled and this group of kids came up and they looked at me and I just gave them my bus pass and they went off. And I felt angry, and I felt humiliated, and I felt emasculated. And that was just one time. Now, nothing ever bad happened to me. I didn't really get roughed up in any way. I never faced any lethal threats or anything. But it was a condition of walking through the city to have that in the back of your head. I was talking to some friends when I, when I was going through final drafts of this book, and I was rereading the portions of the book that were about this time in my life and thinking I was being a little overly dramatic. And I was in a park with these friends of mine who I'm still friends with today who also went uh, to that school. And there's actually someone in this audience who, who was there with me. Not, not there, but at the school. And um, I was like, Did I, am, I, am I imagining that? And they're like, no, dude. Like, we would have 
when we were 12, like the cool thing at the time, and this will hit like a certain age group exactly right. <laughs> Only 90s kids will understand. Um, uh, like we all had, Jansports were the cool backpack, right? Yes, nice, yeah. Y'all remember that? Yeah, and do you guys do the thing here on the West Coast where you like con collected those little, the little strings? That's, that's like the one dude that went to high school with me is clapping. <laughs> Everyone's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But not only did you wear a Jansport, like you wore a Jansport low on your back, like, but super low so it wasn't comfortable. Because that was cool. And so when you walked, it just like hit, hit your butt like this. But the thing about wearing your, Jan your Jansport that low is that you couldn't really run with it. So what would happen is like you'd be walking around and you kind of like looking around, gauging what's going on in the city and like who's over there and who's over there and who's over there. And maybe like out of the corner of your eye, you would sense some threat. And then you'd like grab the straps and go <laughs> Just get that backpack right riding up here so you could book. You know, that, that fear was there the whole time. Um, and it, it wasn't just me, obviously. Um, the city felt it. And when Rudy Giuliani ran for mayor in this context, what he was promising New Yorkers, and particularly white New Yorkers, was order. He was saying to my white liberal mom, like, I'm your kid, I'm going to keep them, the ones that might jack your son's hat, I'm going to keep them where they need to be. I'm going to restore order back to the city. It was the same argument that Richard Nixon had made in 1968. It's the same argument the president has made about the border, right? And it was an argument that drew on this article in 1982 by these two individuals, Kelling and Wilson, called Broken Windows. And what Broken Windows is about is about the ways that disorder lead to crime. The theory of Broken Windows is that if you're in a neighborhood that has broken windows, one broken window or two broken windows, soon you'll have three broken windows and four broken windows, and before you know it, chaos will ensue. And that approach to policing was adopted by William Bratton, who at the time was the head of the police department for the New York City subway system, which was kind of famously, in a sense, a, a site of disorder and disrepair. Like, do people remember the images of the New York City subway system from that time? The city was an icon of disorder, particularly in my youth, <laughs> like in the Bronx. <laughs> there were all these abandoned buildings in the Bronx, and at some point, Mayor Koch decided like the way they were going to deal with that was going to put like window decals in the windows that had like a flower box and like Venetian blinds. <laughs> but they, they didn't like vary up the decals enough. So it looked like this like completely Soviet project <laughs> where every single window had the same colorful image of Potemkin happiness. So, Nixon in that speech, um, he, he has a line in the speech where he, he's sort of trying for some kind of faux equanimity. And he says at some point, you know, um, 
black citizens want the same as white citizens. Um, you know, they, they don't want to be just the subjects of state aid. They don't want to be a colony in a nation. And that term really just stuck with me, that phrase, a colony in a nation. Uh, because when I was reporting in Ferguson and when I was reporting the west side of Baltimore and when I reported in New York and in Chicago, there were so many people that I talked to who were experiencing the police as an occupying force. There were people who were experiencing the police, a form of humiliation in the face of the police that is a form of humiliation that does a crucial and fundamental violence to our shared democratic principles. There was a, a, a kid in a, in a parking lot in Ferguson um, who showed me a video. And um, it was a video of uh, folks in Ferguson um, who were in the front yard of their own house drinking red from red solo cups. You guys know what those are, right? Yeah. Okay, good, good. You'd be super out of touch if you didn't. <laughs> and they're they're drinking from red solo cups and in the background um, in the background you can see the blurry lights of a police cruiser. And behind that police cruiser, it's at night, or in front of the police cruiser, you can see a phalanx of cops in a V formation. And it, they're hard to make out, but the folks who are in the smartphone sort of shaky frame start to get agitated, and someone starts narrating into the phone. They're coming toward us, they're marching, and they're coming towards us. And as he holds out the phone, you can see that there's this wedge formation of cops. And they're wearing the, the riot gear that looks like it was designed by like a Marvel comic book artist. You know that riot gear? Bulges here and bulges there. And, and they have their batons and they're sort of walking laconically, very slowly down the street. And the police bullhorn is telling these people who are in the front yard to get off the front yard and go in the house. And folks in this front yard start getting agitated, and uh, the person who owns the house is like, this is our yard, this is my house, this is my property. And a bunch of people start saying, hands up, don't shoot. Which was the rallying cry in the wake of Mike Brown's death in Ferguson. This is two nights after Michael Brown was, was shot and killed. Police keep coming. Bullhorn tells him to go back in the house. Crowd gets a little more agitated, and then, boom, tear gas canister. Fired into the yard. The camera frame goes shaky as the person holding it hits the ground. Bedlams ensues. People are screaming. The person whose yard it is is furious. His friends have to restrain him as he's yelling, this is my house. This is our property. They finally calm him down, and the person who had been narrating looks in the phone and says, why do you think we say fuck the police? This shit. 
The politics of order have brought us a nation that is divided into two regimes of criminal justice. Those regimes interlock like a latticework in inner city neighborhoods and in long stretches through counties. Those two regimes represent different spheres of citizenship. In the nation, the police sort of function like your laptop's operating system. It's working in the background. You do what you do. The ideal amount of interactions you want to have with the police is zero, right? We agree on that, right? I mean, you don't want to be the victim of crime. You don't want anyone you love or know to be a victim of crime. You don't want to be suspected of a crime. You don't want anyone you love or know to be suspected of a crime. You want to have basically nothing to do with the police ever. In the colony, law enforcement functions like a computer virus. It disrupts, it intrudes constantly. The disruption itself is normal. The disruption itself has to be planned about. And in the colony, the experience of citizenship is an experience of humiliation that we would associate with an unfree nation. The point of this book is for us collectively, and when I say us, I'm going to be specific here, white people. Okay, white people? This political system was not built by some special interests, and it was not negotiated in a backroom deal. It's not like the bankruptcy bill or small bits of deregulation the coal industry is able to convince the president to sign. This was a democratic project. It was a democratic project that was formed through the call and response of white fear over a period of 20 to 30 years that has produced a nation in which one out of every four prisoners in the world is an American. Think about that. I mean, you can go right now to an arraignment court in this city or any city in America, and you can just watch the conveyor belt roll through. It's like Lucy with the chocolates. And that system lies in fundamental conflict with the things that we say we believe as a democratic people. And so the project of this book, I'm going to take questions in just a second. You guys with me still? Okay, good. The project of this book is um, if we made this democratically, we can unmake it democratically. Right? And the project of this book is to tell all of you that are sitting here tonight and everyone that's read the book that we own it as citizens. What's so seductive about the idea that powers it all is that we can build some wall and be okay where we are. I mean, I'm seduced by it. I live in New York City now, crime is down. I own a home, I got two kids. I don't wanna be bothered. I don't want disorder. 
I don't want graffiti back on the subway. Right? There's some part of us, there's some part of me that thinks if real equality were to come, I'd have to pay some price. That it is zero sum. That if we did let the disorder creep back in, then I'd be paying that mental tax I used to pay when I was 12 years old walking around my Jansport. I don't want to pay that. But there's another part of me. It's a part of me that I cling to, particularly in these times, that thinks that a world and a nation in which we flourish together is possible. That the system we've created offers us the promise of safety and security, but it brings us repression. And it hurts us as a people, as a collective entity. It lights on an unbelievably massive bonfire the talents and dreams of aspirations of millions of our fellow citizens every goddamn day. And the country we would be if we tore down those walls, if we relinquished that call for order, if we focused instead on things like safety, right? A different thing. Safety, treatment, trauma, care, empathy, education. <laughs> we would all be better off. So I'm gonna leave you with this and then I'll take questions. Um, <laughs> you look like the kind of audience that will get this reference, so I'll go ahead with it. <laughs> you guys know cognitive behavioral therapy? Okay, yeah, I thought so. Uh, you know, in cognitive behavioral therapy, the idea is that you have these sort of subconscious mental routines and habits, these kind of neural circuitry that gets fired and you don't realize it as a distinct and present entity. It just sort of runs there in the background and it can be bringing you all kinds of distress, anxiety, depression, and the idea is that, not that I've ever been through this, uh, the idea is, <laughs> I've heard, read in books, um, you know, the, the, the idea is that you, you recognize those routines for what they are and you sort of yoink them out and you examine them here, right? I think we need to do that with the way we think about order and punishment. That's the point of this book. It's to get you to take those parts of the brainstem that start getting fired, the most, the deepest parts where the cheeks get flush, and to pull that out and examine it and think for yourself, what are my commitments? What do we really want? And what kind of country do we want to be? Thank you. difficult to put it in one or two sentences, but I'll keep it concise. 
you, your talk points on us as a nation, but we're also citizens of, of a global community. And, and to me, this applies so much on what's going on in the Middle East and how yep. we as a nation are, are consuming so much of the resources of this world that needs, you know, to be addressed and yet yep. we're bankrupting our grandchildren, well for me, great-grandchildren, and it distresses me. So, it stresses me too. Um, it is 100% the case that the same thing that um, gets us to lock up, I think, the same shared political heritage that gets us to lock up one-fourth of the world's prisoners, um, gets us to wage a war on terror that goes on for 16 years. We are, we're at war in Afghanistan right now. And right? Syria and Iraq. And Syria and Iraq and in Yemen. That in a kind of global version of the war on drugs and mass incarceration, an approach to safety, which we all want, right? We don't want to be attacked. We don't want ISIS blowing people up anywhere. But in the approach has yielded more violence and more endless war. And I worry too because that's the place actually where that instinct gets the most intense. I mean, that's the thing I worry about more than anything is like if and when there is another attack, have we built the kind of um, resilience from a perspective of civil society to not let ourselves be fooled again. But I, I agree. It, it seems like a lot of the uh, issues that you're describing and other people have described um, are um, become more of a problem because of a vast amount of misinformation. And a lot of that misinformation seems to be flowing from Fox directly to the president. Yeah. And, the, you know, and the question is, is do you see a way that, that we can uh, disembowel them? Well, I don't, I don't advocate disemboweling, <laughs> metaphorical or literal. Um, as for disinformation, I mean, look, um, you know, I, I lived through, like I said, I lived through the crack years in New York City, and it wasn't Fox News, it was like the local news. Like, about crack babies, for instance. About how addictive crack was, more than cocaine, which proved to be completely empirically bankrupt. In terms of our present day, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of disinformation, right? Also lies. Well, but there's all that old George Costanza line, right? It's not a lie if you believe it. Well, it's true. It's sort of a deep philosophical question, actually. It's one I wrestle with all the time. So there's a lot of disinformation. There's a lot of lies. We live in a more um, balkanized environment for acquiring information than arguably ever. And so my response to your question are basically two things. One is a person who tries to communicate information and for all of you in the audience who consume it. You know, for me, the way that I've approached my job in the last 60 days particularly is double down on all the principles I believe, which is um, 
clarity, rigor, precision, fact-checking, charitability towards those I don't agree with, open-mindedness, right? And for the folks in this room who are consumers, I would say there's two things to think about. One is um, be attentive to the information you consume and the source of it. But this is the most important thing. If you believe that only some other kind of person is able to be suckered, you will be suckered. We've all got the same brain architecture. We are all subject to tribalism and confirmation bias. I mean, Lord knows things come across my feed every day that I think, well, that's too good to check. <laughs> and I don't put it on air, <laughs> right? So if you think something's too good to check, <laughs> if something comes into your informational space that just makes that brainstem confirmation bias place just light up like a volcano. Be skeptical of it. Next question. Um, thank you for your book. It was really thought-provoking. It, it led me in a lot of different directions. But one thing that struck me was your idea that you wrote kind of towards the end of leveling down in the criminal justice system. And I'm wondering, do you see a way forward where us as American society can focus ourselves on leveling up, and not totally. just in criminal justice, but in things like, I see it all the time in unions. People say, why do the union members get good benefits, and I don't, they yeah. should have what I have. So uh, there's, there's a great book called Harsh Justice by a guy named James Whitman, who's at Yale, who writes about the sort of comparative legal development of criminal justice in the US versus continental systems in Germany and France. And he says, basically, the way to understand what happened in Germany, France, which have much more humane prison systems, is it basically there were two tiers of justice. There was a sort of commoner and aristocratic tier of justice. And what they did is they just sort of leveled everyone up to aristocratic. Right? The, 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 the social project was that everyone would enjoy due process and humane treatment. In the US, we never had this sort of formal two-tiered aristocratic commoner. Of course, we had a formal two-tiered system by race. But we just leveled down. Right? And you see that urge all the time still. I write about in the book when Brock Turner, who is a Stanford student, swimming star, convicted of rape, a sexual assault that happened in a brutal fashion. He was interrupted by two foreign exchange students and he got six months. And the judge talked about his bright future and people lost their mind and they lost their mind completely understandably, right? But that impulse to punish, that's a thing we got to interrogate. And the reason I say that is because if America would like to come down to incarceration rates, incarceration rates that are like other OECD countries, we're not going to stop at nonviolent drug offenders. It would mean letting out people who've committed assault, who've committed rape, who've committed manslaughter. It's always this point in the talk when the room gets silent. <laughs> I'm serious, right? We want it to be the case that the, the, the nonviolent drug offender is the problem with mass incarceration. No. It is going to require a 
a complete sort of social reconception of what we do when people are in prison, when and how people can be reintegrated, rehabilitated, and deeply, in a spiritual sense, redeemed. And everyone's got that empathy inside them for someone maybe they happen to know. Some of the toughest, harsh-on-crime Republicans wrote letters to the judge when Denny Hastert was sentenced, <laughs> saying this guy, whatever he did, molest boys as a high school wrestling coach, I know him as a good person, right? That capacity for forgiveness for someone that is close to us, that's going to have to be extended much more broadly. Right. I'm going to be as concise as I can, but my question requires a little bit of context. So there's a part in the book where you talk about how we, well, you go through this training exercise where you experience what it's like to be a police officer, relatively low trained in the sorts of situations that you're in. Um, and you compare that to being a social worker and how police officers are frequently um, sent into the same sorts of situations that social workers are. Um, I'm a social worker, um, but due to my particular job, I have approximately the same level of training in conflict resolution and de-escalation that police officers do. Wow. Um, so I'm going into the same kinds of environments as police officers, and the main difference that I see between their job and mine is that A, I don't have a gun, and B, I'm actually, per our code of conduct, not allowed to physically defend myself. Right. So my question is twofold, um, because also social workers, and I don't know how many people know this, but social workers experience a higher rate of workplace violence than any other em employment demographic. Uh, so my question is, if I'm not afraid to go into those environments, right. why should the police be? And secondly, um, how much research, if any, in the book did you do into the rates of violence that police experience versus the rate of violence that they perpetrate? Um, great, great question. Um, I was sure you were leading up to, so shouldn't I be armed? I'm from, I'm, I'm from Britain, and our police don't have guns. Right. So I was, that's what I was going to say, right? So um, there are police forces around the world that don't have guns. There are police forces uh, around the world uh, that fire their weapons. I think I said in the book, like, the Danish police fired their weapon 12 times last year, collectively, across the entire nation. Um, on the second question, we just don't have very good data, right? So one of the obstacles for all this is national data is incredibly hard to come by. For instance, if you ask the simple question, like, how many times did American police discharge their weapon last year? Nobody can answer that question. Literally. That, the, the answer to that question does not exist as a statistical artifact. So all of this data is really developing. In fact, it's been a, a variety of kind of volunteer projects and journalistic projects that even compile databases of fatal shootings, right? The first point is such a profound one, and I don't have a good answer. I don't have a good answer. Um, I know that, I think that the presence of guns in America really changes policing and shapes policing in certain ways. But it is also true as an empirical matter that policing is not even in the top 10 jobs 
uh, in terms of danger. Mm -hmm. Logging, for instance, is much more dangerous than policing in terms of workplace fatalities. And I think, I think in my ideal world and the thing that I sort of dreamed about in a sort of like, you know, the wire Hamsterdam experiment kind of way is a, a world in which like, at least in one neighborhood, we just said, we're literally just gonna have like two social workers and addiction specialists for every cop. And we're gonna train them and they're gonna be in the neighborhood and like, let's see what happens. What if every call that came in, because as I say in the book, like when I'm doing this police training and you're a beat cop, you show up and an ex-girlfriend is parked in the car of her ex-boyfriend who's now with a new girlfriend and they're beefing. You're 26, go. Like resolve that, right? It's sort of a miracle they ever work. So I, I do think like, I, I really do think, um, I think there is a real space to really increase the number of people without guns who are intervening in these situations. Okay. Yeah, hi, Chris. I've got, I think, uh, three sentences and a question. And I'm only cogent in print, so I had to write it down. Uh, Umberto Eco wrote in the Prague Cemetery, a cheerful little novel I just finished reading, uh, national identity is the last bastion of the dispossessed, but the meaning of identity is now based on hatred, on hatred for those who are not the same. Now about a few weeks back, I read three pieces in the New York Times Magazine, which I, you probably saw too, about jobs in the future, the jobs that are most available now, which seem to be mostly in service uh, industry, the jobs that have been or soon will be completely automated, and the probable need in the future for a guaranteed national income to offset this. Both of these things I found interesting. So my question is, what chances do you see for the colony if the nation continues to see itself as in danger of being dispossessed? And for that matter, what chances do you see for the nation itself as this possible future begins to unfold? I think, um I think there's two possibilities. Um, first of all, let me just put myself down as a skeptic on automation. Um, not like a harsh skeptic, but like literally people have been saying robots will take all jobs for 180 years. And then we just find new stuff to do and sell to each other <laughs> that require human beings. Um, that said, the kinds of conditions in huge swaths of particularly white working class America are very real and are very real in terms of decline, like materially worse off. And I think of places like McDowell County, I think as, as that trend happens, right, there's sort of two ways our politics can go. One is doubling down on building the wall, both in a sort of literal border sense and a kind of metaphorical sense between the colony and the nation, between us and them, between in-group and out-group, because you feel like you need to protect what you have, even as it diminishes. And I think that was a lot of what the last election was about. <laughs> but I also have a hopeful sense that there's another possibility, which is that as huge swaths of what I call in the book the nation sort of trend towards an experience of what life is like in the colony, right? 
I mean, think about addiction, right? How often addiction means interfacing with the criminal justice system. How often uh, it means interfacing with the criminal justice system for a loved one who has addiction, right? Finding yourself in court maybe for, for the first time. That as those conditions in some bizarre way trend towards the conditions that are experienced uh, in the colony, there is the potential for actual solidarity. And I'll, I'll conclude on this, which is that I did two town halls in the last two months. One was on the south side of Chicago. Um, it was almost entirely African American. One was in McDowell County, which is predominantly white. And these places are so far apart geographically and culturally and socially and politically. And yet, there was a lot they shared. I mean, in both places, like, I could feel the trauma in the room like it was a physical presence. People have been through it. And I think the only hope for any of us, all of us, is that somehow out of that we can build solidarity. Okay. Well, thanks for coming and visiting us. I, I know I really appreciate it. Um, there's so many questions with the news being so crazy today. I'm going to pick what I think might be the most important. It's the one that bothers me the most. And that is I'm really upset with how we seem to be soft peddling all of these uh, connections between the Trump uh, group and the Russians. And I get the feeling that even if they find something very definite, it's like, oh, it's just a slap on the wrist. It's just like, no, no, you shouldn't have done that. Learn your lesson. And I really think it's time to start calling it what it is. It's treason. And everyone is so reluctant to use that word, it's none dare call it treason right. so, to go back a few decades, but um, so, that's, that's what bothers me. So um, <laughs> every book event I got, I, I've done, there's some point in the Q&A where it's like, yeah, yeah, your book. Um, let's talk about Russia. <laughs> um, a few things. One, I don't use the word treason because I don't think treason's been established. Um, right. Although even the allocations, I'll be very, very like annoyingly literal here, right? Russia's an adversary, it's not an enemy right now, right? We don't have an active war with Russia. They're not holding our soldiers the way, say, ISIS or the Taliban might, right? Now, the allegations are extremely serious. And the amount of information continues to mount. And the behavior of the parties involved is wildly, wildly guilty-seeming. <laughs> At every step along the way, my approach is like, I'm going to take the most conservative interpretation of each new fact set. Right? Like, I'm going to be 
small c conservative about what we know. And at every step along the way, like I, they keep making me feel like I was a chump. <laughs> like, okay, you didn't talk to the ambassador about the sanctions on sanction day? I, I, that seems uh, implausible, but okay, well, we'll see. No, he totally talked to the ambassador about sanctions on sanctions day. So I, th I think, look, if there is collusion or coordination of any kind, it's the biggest scandal in American history. But there's two things I would say about that. And we covered this in my A block last night and the night before, and we've been on this story. One is that it's also entirely possible the whole thing happened in the absence of explicit collusion. Like, they hacked the DNC in very public ways. The Trump camp sent signals to the Russian state that they would be more friendly to them. Then they hacked Podesta and released that. And somewhere in there, Donald Trump looked into a camera and said, Russia, if you're listening, hack Hillary Clinton's emails. So that seems like enough <laughs> to communicate what needed to be communicated. The final thing I'll say on Russia is that from the day that Donald Trump came down the escalator, people opposed to him and what he stands for have been in this state of sort of disbelief, and they've been waiting for the moment when the deus ex machina winks him out of existence. <laughs> right? The, the implosion is around the corner, like, oh, well, he said that about John McCain, I and mean, he can't possibly. <laughs> there's like the thing, there's the kill shot, the silver bullet. And I worry sometimes that people that are opposed to him are looking for that from Russia, and just like the previous ones didn't deliver it, this won't deliver it. If you look at the president's approval ratings, job approval ratings, there is one inflection point. He basically is bumping around like this in the 40s, which is low, let's be clear. But then something happens that actually sends him below that, right? He starts going down to like 35 where he is now in Gallup, which is just shockingly low. <laughs> that inflection point is the introduction of that healthcare bill. It's not a magic bullet that will ultimately be the political end, I think, of Donald Trump. It is normal politics. And what I mean by normal politics is I mean citizens fighting on the terrain of who is going to make someone's life better. We have time for two more questions, but before we ask them, a couple of reminders. If you haven't bought a book, or you have a book and you want it signed, you're going to exit through the north stairwell and find a town hall staff member and they'll get you in line. If you're just leaving, if you're gonna go get dinner, get a cocktail, head out these stairs. Does that sound good? Perfect. How you doing, Chris? Good man, how are you? My name's Paul Grain. I'm from Hackensack, New Jersey. I used, to ride my, I used to ride my bike to the Bronx 
in Brooklyn when I was a kid. Um, my question about your book, um, I, I'm, I appreciate you going to Ferguson, um, but even living in Hackensack, I went back about a month ago, uh, I mean, last year, there's been a change there in the police force. And I noticed the change because I was sitting on my porch and I was harassed by the police. They had their hand on their hip and they were asking me for ID and this thing and that thing and they said they got a suspicious, uh, suspicious person report and that's why they came there. This is where I grew up, this is where I live, but I hadn't been there because in a while. And so my question to you is, when I compare Hackensack and Ferguson to Camden, New Jersey, Camden, New Jersey, crime has gone down 70% since the new police chief has come in. Why can't we use that as a template yeah. around the world? And if you could explain that to the people here that may not know what went on in Camden, New Jersey, where they, crime was through the roof, and now they have a new police chief, and they have a thing called community policing. Camden's been a real success story, um, and it's been a success story in which there's been uh, a whole variety of ways in which they've approached the problem. But this community policing model, right, which is that there's sort of a partnership and trust built between the community, um, that there are, um, uh, there are, uh, there's training that they're doing, right, to de-escalate situations. Lots of training, actually. They've, they've sort of undergone. They've also put a lot of people in neighborhoods, right, under this theory that kind of like you can police better if you're with a bunch of people and you're all trained to do the same thing, right, which is not sort of harass. And I think there, there, what, I, what I would say, there's a great book about policing right now called Unwarranted by Barry Friedman um, that's got a lot of like sort of programmatic ways to think about changing policing. And I think there's a lot of reasons to think that uh, what's happened in Camden, there's some really promising stuff that's happened in a few different towns in uh, Northern California, that it's a false trade-off. We can reduce crime, right? And also not have this sort of sense of occupation. That's a thing that we're capable of doing. But I also think that Part of what happens in this discussion is there's a lot of focus on police, appropriately and correctly, but, but police are the tip of the spear, right? Like, there is so much that has to happen behind policing to unmake this system. Um, the last thing I'll say is Camden's been an amazing story because at the time the crime's been coming down there, it has been going up in other big cities, particularly the last two years. It's been particularly bad in Chicago, Baltimore, Milwaukee, St. Louis. And you're seeing a story be told, sometimes short, you know, shorthand the Ferguson effect, which is like, well, this is what you get. You guys want to protest, and then the cops can't do their job, and then crime comes back. And that's a re and that I cannot tell you how many stories I have heard 
of that from folks who are everything from lawyers to 12-year-olds. Yeah. That, I mean, that is the thing that is the, the real insult to what we should be as a country, right? Like, and that experience is also a violation of the Constitution. And it's a violation of what the founders fought against. And, and you can read about this in the book, but I'll quickly say that police actions like that, like grabbing someone with no real predicate, were what ignited the colonists into revolution. In the Declaration of Independence itself, Thomas and Jefferson writes of the Crown, he has sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. That's Jefferson E's for fuck the police. All right, I'll try and make this quick. Um, you already kind of addressed the disinformation um, issue that we've encountered significantly recently, so thank you for that. I have a bit of a sort of twist. Um, so the information networks that we have in existence today have sort of changed the way that information gets to people, right? Um, so my question for you is, what are your thoughts on the quote-unquote menace of unreality or the idea that nobody really believes anything anymore? So I, I remain agnostic uh, the degree to which... Um, I remain agnostic that we wish like social media is driving the problem, like how much it's a cause and how much it's an effect. I think there's all sorts of balkanization that was happening before social media, and it's unclear to me whether social media is like sort of accelerant or just reflective of what is this really profound sociological phenomenon. In terms of my response to this kind of sense of unreality, this weird, um, Sometimes it seems like the country's like committing epistemic suicide. Like we're just losing the faculties the way like someone in dementia might, like as a collective body politic to know what's real and not. Um, I told my staff, I think, it, I told my staff the day after the election, I said to them, look, um, my approach to our work is that I'm going to act as if Reality matters. Facts matter and truth matters. Us getting it right matters. That the laws of physics apply. That if you make people's lives better, the bulk of them, you'll be politically successful. And if you don't, you won't be. That outcomes matter. That the tangible experience of people's lives matter. I'm going to act as if all that's true, even though I'm not quite sure it is. Because if it's not, I don't know what to do. And that's basically, like, I, that's my guide for everyone, as citizens in whatever you do. I don't know what reality we live in right now politically. All I know is that you conduct yourself acting as if the things that you cherish have value. Thank you guys, thank you very much.
You guys are awesome. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle, featuring a talk by journalist and author Chris Hayes. He spoke at Town Hall Seattle on March 29th. Tune in again soon. Thank you.